Our scripture this morning is Amos chapter 1, the first two verses. Amos chapter 1, the first two verses. And our subject is Amos the burden bearer. This is an introduction to the book of Amos. Amos 1, the first two verses. The words of Amos, who was among the herdmen of Tekoa, when he saw, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, The Lord will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem, and the habitations of the shepherds shall mourn, and the top of Carbal shall wither. Amos is an interesting prophet. The name Amos means to bear, uh, to place a load on, burdened, or as it's often rendered, burden bearer. Amos describes himself very briefly. He says he's among the herdmen of Tekoa. The word used for herdman here is a little different than the usual word for shepherd, um, which is roa. The word used is noqued or nakod. It means he was a shepherd of a very particular kind of desert sheep. And this particular sheep had short legs, um, was somewhat ugly, uh, but it had a highly valued wool. So these were not the shepherds of the, the prime sheep that grazed in uh, green pastures. This was a, an animal uh, that was raised in semi-arid areas in very rough territory, um, rugged land uh, by people who were somewhat remote from, um, you know, city life and the more refined areas. In fact, there's a, an Arabian, uh, an Arabic expression of contempt that translates as viler than a nakod. So Amos was considered rather low on the social economic scale. And uh, much of his prophecy condemned Israel for the injustice of their social order towards the poor um, based on the oppression of the well-to-do. Amos was a poor man, uh, though he was not from Israel. He was from the southern kingdom of Judah, but he was a prophet to the northern kingdom. But he certainly would have understood uh, the oppression of the poor. Amos was from uh, Tekoa, and all we know of Tekoa, it was a small village about six miles south of Bethlehem, so it was about 12 miles from Jer south of Jerusalem. Very rugged country, rocky, steep canyons. It's believed by some to be the place where Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, and John likely spent some of his time in this area. So to say the least, Amos was an outsider to the rich and prosperous inhabitants of Israel to whom he prophesied. And he was, by the way, the last prophet to, um, that was sent by God to uh, the northern kingdom of Israel. All the rest of the minor prophets we, we will look at were prophets to Judah. Amos tells us his words were to Israel. He also tells us that when exactly when he prophesied. Not all of the prophets mention a time frame, such as Obadiah. Uh, we don't know the exact time frame, but uh, Amos tells us, and he pinpoints it pretty precisely for us. He says, 
It was in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel. So he tells us, I prophesied during this period of uh, Israel's history and this period of Judah's history. Uh, and he says, then he mentions a, a third way to peg it, and that is two years before the earthquake. So this allows us to, to narrow the time frame of Amos's uh, prophecy. Both Uzziah and Jeroboam II uh, had very long reigns. Uh, it's likely, and there's some difference about these reigns, you know, they vary a year or two, but Amos probably prophesied just before or right around 750 BC, some stretch it maybe uh, earlier, 14 or 15 years. The, unfortunately, the reference to the earthquake doesn't really uh, help us peg a date because we don't know, we've, this, the, the details and the date of this earthquake is sort of lost to uh, history. It obviously would have had, um, definitely pegged the date for his uh, listeners and those who, who for, for some years afterwards. It was apparently a, a remarkable event, kind of like the San Francisco earthquake, uh, would be a good way to peg historical events uh, in our generation. And many years later, Zechariah referred to the same earthquake. So it was obviously a, a, a remarkable event uh, to uh, those of that generation and the succeeding generations. We've said the great power of the day was Assyria. But closer to Israel was its neighbor that had constantly given it product. The regional power had been Syria. And as we recall from our earlier lessons, even going back to, to the, um, the time of, of Elijah and Elisha, Syria, Syria had seriously threatened the northern kingdom of Israel. A time or two, they had threatened to completely overwhelm it and dissolve Israel as an entity. And it was only by you know, miracles that Syria did not overwhelm and destroy Israel. Things changed, though. Um, long about 803 or 805 BC, about 40 or 50 years before Amos Wright. Assyria crushed Syria. From Assyria from Mesopotamia, the great world power at the time, had crushed Syria. So Syria was no longer a threat to Israel. And then about that time, um, Syria became preoccupied elsewhere, uh, particularly to the north, and then it was, uh, uh, there was a succession of weak Assyrian monarchs. So here Israel's neighbor, Syria, had been pretty much destroyed uh, militarily as a power, and then the power that destroyed Israel's threat itself became weak for about a generation. So Israel's local nemesis was gone, and the great world power was in a period of decline. So the defeat of Syria and the weakness of Assyria created a political and economic vacuum in the region. And Israel then became the regional power. Uh, Israel, we know, increased its territory, mostly at Syria's expense. And more importantly, Israel now commanded all of the trade routes between uh, Mesopotamia and the Mediterranean world, and that would have included Egypt, which was the gateway to Africa. 
So a tremendous amount of trade moved through Israel during these years. Uh, Samaria, the capital of Israel, became the Mecca for <coughs> merchants traveling um, these trade routes. And caravans brought uh, goods, and Samaria had all the, the, these luxuries available to it. And so Samaria kind of became the emporium for all the goods available from, from Africa, the Mediterranean world, and Mesopotamia, and even points beyond Mesopotamia, ultimately. Now, <clears throat> of course, this wealth, um, because of the trade routes, meant that very quickly Israel itself became a player in this world trade. And Israel produced a class of wealthy merchants. And, uh, of course, they displayed this wealth. Particularly mentioned is this a huge building boom. Whenever there's, there's money available, people start building impressive uh, buildings. Until the real estate crash, there was um, a huge building boom. The wealthy were tearing down homes that were worth many hundreds of thousands to build these uh, huge uh, mansions, really, that would rival things that were built in the um, uh, 18th and 19th uh, century. In fact, there was a television show that talked about these, the building of these huge uh, mansions, and they called them McMansions. Um, in chapter 3, verse 15, there's a reference to great houses. To, they were called winter houses and summer houses and houses of ivory. But chapter 3, verse 10, refers to the palaces that store up spoil and violence. So the wealth of these merchants that went into this building boom uh, also reflected the fact that um, they weren't exactly just in their business dealings. And of course, this, these palaces don't just refer to what we would think of palaces as the palaces of uh, kings, but it really refers to the palaces of the wealthy whose lust for profits often led them to immoral practices that involved injustice and violence. And particularly the poor are um, said in it by Amos to have been oppressed by this newfound wealth and the, and the power of this merchant class. In chapter 3, 12 and chapter 6, 4, the luxury is referred to by reference to couches and beds. In other words, they had the good life. Uh, the wealthy had a life of luxury and ease. All this is in the context of this tremendous wealth uh, because of this period of um, prosperity by Israel. So Israel is not in trouble as we've seen it in the past where, you know, Ben-Hadad came pretty, at one point he had said, um, I have free reign to come in and plunder your cities anytime I want. Uh, now Syria was out of the picture and Israel was more powerful than it had ever been. It was wealthier than it had ever been. In this financial boom, all that Israel could think of was increasing their wealth, but their injustice, and their oppression of the poor is referred to repeatedly by Amos. In chapter 8, verse 5, they're said to be upset with uh, the Sabbath and festival days. They were impatient because they wanted commerce, they wanted trade, they wanted to make money, and they didn't like having to stop for the various festival days. And if you look at the Jewish calendar, there were a lot of days where they had to basically shut down business, and the, and the merchant class didn't like that because they said, you know, time is money. And here we're 
sitting around doing nothing during you know this this period of these festival days, and uh, and and we want to get on with the business of making money. Their wives are said to be guilty as well. Uh, in chapter four, verses one and three, their wives are referred to as kine. That means cattle. I mean, in effect, their wives were referred to as cows. Uh, not at all complimentary. And it says these cows demanded more and more luxuries. Wealth is often seen as a reward in scripture. So the problem is not wealth. It's not the accumulation of wealth. Success and prosperity is often said to be a blessing and a good thing. Here we see a different treatment of wealth. Here we see that wealth had corrupted them. It was the love of money that had taken control of them. Both poor and merchant were really destroyed in the process. The poor is described as being oppressed and abused and becoming poorer, and the merchant class has become corrupt and unjust. Money is, represents power. Uh, obviously, when you have money, you have the ability to do things. That's, that's a form of power. So money is a form of power, and it's power that men tend to abuse. But we have to be careful when we condemn materialism because there are different ways in which people criticize materialism. Uh, some people will criticize materialism as um, because they will, they will suggest that material wealth itself is unjust. And this is really, in effect, a Marxist argument against materialism. And that is that if you have something, it's because somebody else doesn't have it. Therefore, by rights, uh, ownership of, of, of wealth represents injustice. That's not a biblical um, position at all. The, um, another form of uh, criticism of materialism that's wrong is that it's somehow unspiritual to have wealth. This is kind of a, a dualistic uh, philosophy that is uh, spirit is good and the, anything material is bad. Therefore, if we accumulate material things, we love that which is unspiritual. And uh, that represents a weakness in it. That's also not a biblical idea. It's the love of money is the problem in scripture. Material wealth is not always the problem. It's not necessarily uh, the problem. The problem with material Wealth is a moral one. Uh, wealth can bring power, and power can feed arrogance. Power can make men feel that they're independent of God and that God's rules no longer apply. And this is where um, men often abuse this power that wealth represents. And in the doing so, they often abuse the poor. Amos was a poor peasant. Even though he didn't live in Israel, but we have to say that uh, Judah, under King Uzziah, enjoyed some of the same prosperity that Israel enjoyed. And so that even in Amos' uh, nation of Judah, he would have seen the same uh, prosperity and some of the same problems. Both nations were really benefiting now from a serious weakness. The rich at this time were getting richer and the poor were getting poorer. And this reflects very much what has happened since really the, the real estate crash of, uh, I think it's about 2007 or so. There's 
uh, a temptation to use more than wealth to your advantage because again wealth represents power and therefore sometimes powerful people use that power to their advantage at other people's expense and this can sometimes lead to oppression and really defrauding people even in this nation just in the last few years um, we've seen that uh, the Supreme Court upheld the right of uh, municipalities uh, to take property merely because they thought they had a better use for it and so they could take privately owned property and give it to a developer uh, because in some way that developer could develop some a project that would bring in more revenue uh, to the uh, local government and theoretically uh, benefit more people. Um, we also sometimes see free enterprise criticized because it can um, um, hurt the poor. And that is sometimes true. Free enterprise is good when it is free. But freedom is not absolute. Uh, fr to freedom has to be freedom under law, freedom under some kind of a standard. Freedom can never be morally lawless. And if you have free enterprise that's a morally lawless free enterprise, you will have problems and you can't have the oppression of the poor. Free enterprise can't happen in a moral vacuum. Morality and ethics have to be demanded in the marketplace as well. Uh, a couple examples of totally free markets without law and ethics is on the one hand the mafia when the, the rules don't apply to them and they can just use power as they want that's like a totally freedom without law but another example of a totally free market without law or ethics would be anarchy. The fact is that you have to have law with liberty. You have to have some kind of a standard in, in terms of which liberty applies. And we would say that's God's justice. And that's why Amos here is criticizing the wealthy for their oppression of the poor. But we can't use a Marxist or uh, some sort of a dualistic standard to criticize materialism. Their uh, offense was that they were oppressing people. They weren't showing uh, the righteousness of God. Their, so, their standard of, of uh, justice was highly flawed because they weren't obeying God. The injustices listed by Amos are numerous. The poor, he will say, are, were being forced to sell their property. The poor were being denied justice. The moneylenders were taking advantage of the poor Particularly, they were keeping their clothes even as pledges for their debt, which is specifically forbidden. The judges were being bribed. In fact, judges who had integrity were held in contempt, we're told in chapter 5, verse 10. So there was no justice. And I think one of the, the problems with our, our court system today, I tell people it's not a justice system because it has no standard of justice. It's, it's, a, it's a legal system that uses rules entirely established by man. You can't even bring in scripture in a court of law in the United States. In fact, that it can be the cause, if you do refer to a higher standard than US law, it can be a cause for a mistrial. Um, today, one of our problems with our court system is it takes money to get justice. The mere fact that you are accused of a crime can destroy you. Even if you're ultimately found not guilty, the, the cost of justice is so high it's not really just. Um, Another form of, of, of uh, oppression, I think, built into our system uh, 
which Amos wouldn't have liked, is um, the fact that inflation and fiat money is destroying everybody's wealth. That's a form of, of taking from the poor, taking from all classes, but it per first of all, it hits the poor. Um, and that is a form of, of, of injustice that's very immoral. Amos will also criticize um, the, the fact that the witnesses in the proceedings were dishonest. It meant that the system, there was a system where dishonest witness was possible. And again, we have that today, and um, uh, perjury today is rarely prosecuted. Um, it's very common today for criminals to be used as informants. And many people have been um, convicted because someone who is a far worse criminal than they have said, well, this person confessed to me. And of course, that criminal then gets a, a reduced sentence or uh, some benefit. So they're in effect being paid for their testimonies. And uh, so there's a, a, a lot about our social structure today that is very questionable that Amos could just as easily criticize. We referred in the past to the religious climate in Israel. Obviously, it was good. They never had a good king never had a godly king in all their history. Jehovah worship was based on the calf cult established by Jeroboam uh, I. And uh, Ahab and Jezebel had then shortly thereafter introduced Baal worship. Uh, their successor Jehu, if you recall, had re officially removed Baal worship, but it had remained very popular. And it, it seems as though from what we can determined from the tidbits that we have is that Jehovah was treated something like a Baal. They regarded their Baals and they regarded Jehovah and they didn't quite give up the, the, the sacrifices and such of Jehovah worship, but it was always combined with this calf cult. And so it was always unacceptable to God. And even though there were many references to the fact that they were continuing these offerings and continuing, continuing sacrifices. Um, there were some forms of worship that we, we do know that they were going. So they were going somewhat in terms of the, the formalities, the holidays, the sacrifices, uh, and the, the offerings. What we can gather is that a corrupt people were offering a corrupted worship. The formalities and the rites were to a certain extent maintained. But what's particularly noted here by Amos is that righteousness or justice was absent. And we've, what we, we've, we've said that the words righteousness and justice are really the same in, in Scripture. In fact, sometimes when we're, um, those who are declared forgiven by God are called the justified. Uh, the justified are also called the righteous or the just. Justice and righteousness are really the same concept in Scripture. They're, they're synonymous. Uh, uh, righteousness is, is God's standard, and the only way to have social justice in, in a culture is to do things God's way. So what, what this implies, obviously, is that godliness has to be reflected in the social order or God is not happy. Now, we would say, we know this, we'll accept this individually. We will say that if somebody claims to be a Christian, their life should reflect it. In other words, the righteousness of God should be reflected in us as individuals. Scripture says more. 
that the righteousness of a people has to be reflected in the justice, the righteousness of the social order. Today we talk a lot about Christ in Christianity, but it has little bearing on justice. And to the extent that we do bring concepts of, of justice in a spiritual sense, it, it tends to be just a throwing, well, let's, let's go back to some uh, foreign concept of justice. And it's, they talk about some liberal or some non-Christian form of justice. Yes, we Christians should support this justice. And they throw it all back to the state and says the state should provide some kind of social justice and welfare system and so forth and help the poor. In other words, they throw it all back to the state and they don't really do their Christian duty. Religion had been come to Israel unrelated to their conduct. And, and, and Amos says that God hated their feasts and their offerings, and their songs are referred to as noise before God. Israel had become basically a dog-eat-dog -dog society without justice, without pity. Godliness or righteousness, justice, uh, was disappearing from their culture. The first thing Amos is going to do is we'll be seeing in, in um, uh, our next lesson is he begins talking about other nations round about Israel. He talks about pagan nations before he talks about Israel. The point he's going to make is what's the difference? And shouldn't there be a difference? He points out the injustice of the surrounding nations. His point eventually being you're just as bad. He will specifically say, past judgments haven't produced any repentance in you. Chapter 4 will repeat the phrase, yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. And Amos's conclusion in chapter 4 will be, prepare to meet thy God, O Israel. We've heard that line quoted before. It's usually when somebody on TV is going about to kill somebody. He said, prepare to meet thy God. It's not talking about Israel's death. It's talking about Israel's judgment. Israel meeting the judgment of God. God is not going to let your culture off scot-free. All your prosperity is going to wither and die, and you're going to be taken captive. So the preparing to meet that God is pre preparing to meet the judgment of God on your culture. In chapter 1, verse 2, Amos says, the top of Carmel shall wither. Now, Carmel was a, a mountain close to the sea. It was the place, if you recall, of Elijah's victory over the prophets. Um, of Baal. Carmel was fruitful, and the name Carmel was uh, synonymous with a place of beauty. In other words, it was a garden spot. But Amos says the shepherd will mourn because Carmel will wither. What he's implying is that if the garden spot of Israel is going to wither, what might survive God's wrath? Israel at the time was at the peak of its prosperity. Money flowed into it. Every luxury from Africa, the Mediterranean, and Mesopotamia was available. The upper class, the merchant class, uh, were basically the, the fat cats. Outwardly, everything was better than it had ever been for Israel. This was Israel's golden age. But, but Amos is saying judgment is imminent and it's inescapable. It's interesting that nowhere does Amos refer to the God of Israel. Instead, he refers to God's attributes and powers, but he only refers to Israel as a people who rejected God, who refused to return to God. In chapter 9, God says, This people might as well be Ethiopians to me. God had been gracious 
to Israel, but Israel turned away from true worship. And Israel had become cruel, selfish, and arrogant. They had begun to assume that God would forever favor them because they were lavish in their offerings. Yes, in their prosperity, they did give more to God. And even they even recorded the amount so everybody knew what other people had given. It was like a, a competition. I'm so wealthy and look at how much I'm giving to God. And I think that's why we have to be careful about publicizing who gives what and who funds what in you know, church programs because there is a um, biblical justification for, for giving in secret so that God who sees in secret will reward openly. God is basically going to teach them about righteousness, which means justice. When people are unjust or unrighteousness, or when they're unjust or unrighteous, they need to be taught justice. Now, today in the West, uh, it's sometimes hard to um, say how does this apply to us because we don't necessarily do the same, have the same flaws as people in Scripture. For instance, in the West today, we don't emphasize ritual or formal outward ceremony as uh, Israel did. We tend to emphasize feelings, the right emotions, and the right spiritual words. Uh, and we think this is the essence of, of true religion. But Amos really emphasizes two things as the mark of our faith, true worship of God and righteousness or justice particularly to the poor and vulnerable. And in the case of this latter, the Western church has largely abandoned the matters of uh, righteousness and justice to, to statist welfare programs. But our officially godless state cannot institute the kind of righteousness, uh, the kind of biblical justice that God's law requires. And the church very often cannot do it because believers um, do not tithe. So the church does not have the funding to really do what it, uh, what it needs to do if it really wants to get into social welfare. There's a lot of needy people in, in the church, and the church has no resources to help them. And this, is part, um, and this is part of our problem today in the church. God's judgment was to destroy Israel. Chapter 9 describes it as breaking the lintel uh, over Israel's door. The lintel was the, the upper doorpost, and he says, you know, I'm going to break that. In effect, I'm going to break Israel's doorpost so the building starts to collapse. It'll be structurally unsound once I start to uh, pass judgment on it. And it says they won't escape if they dig to hell or they climb to heaven. Now, at the very end of Amos, there's nine chapters here. At the very end of Amos, he does, like Joel, promise to reestablish a remnant under the house of David. This is clearly a picture pointing towards Jesus Christ because uh, it was only in Jesus Christ that the house of David was reestablished. Um, James so referred to uh, this reference at, uh, in the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. So we have ap apostolic uh, statement that this is how we are to understand this. this. This really doesn't look to the future or to a future state of Israel. It really looks to the people of God in Jesus Christ. In other words, the church, the body of Christ is the reestablished Israel. And, 
And Amos says there the, the remnant will never be pulled up out of the land, the land really being the whole world. It's the kingdom of God. Uh, the kingdom of God will never be torn asunder. Proverbs 14, 34 says, Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is the reproach to any people. Uh, and so, Proverbs 16, 12 says, It's an abomination to kings to commit wickedness, for the throne is established by righteousness. When it says the throne is established by righteousness, it's, it's not mechanistically that if you do these things, um, then God is going to establish your kingdom. It's morally established in terms of righteousness because if a kingdom uh, establishes true righteousness, God's standard of righteousness, it is morally well-founded. Only righteousness and just, uh, or biblical justice satisfies God. We must not only individually be righteous or just, but our culture, our, our family life, our community, our whole culture, our whole civilization needs to be characterized by biblical justice, biblical righteousness. We cannot claim to be Christians and live in an unrighteous culture and not expect judgment. God not only judges individuals, he also judges nations. We are to submit to God in faith as his justified people, as the just or the righteous of God. And we are just told by Christ to disciple all nations, teaching them what? To observe all things that he has commanded. So we don't just have, the Christian faith is not just an individual matter, a private matter, it's also a corporate matter. And we have an obligation to co command the world that this is what the righteousness of God is. Uh, part of our uh, Psalter reading was, uh, So shall I keep thy law continually forever and ever, and I will walk at liberty, for I seek thy precepts. Liberty involves walking in the, in the law, the precepts of God. That's our only standard for liberty. Liberty itself cannot be absolute, or we can, have, we can justify anarchy. Okay, we have to live in terms of a standard, and a standard of righteousness and justice, and we have to expect that of our culture and demand that of our culture. And we have to hold our culture to a biblical standard of what constitutes justice and righteousness. Let us pray. Our most good and gracious God and heavenly Father, we know that you are a God of justice, a God of righteousness, that you have a standard, and it's a standard by which all men, believers and unbelievers, are, are judged. And as we submit to you in faith, and we submit to your standard of, of what is right and what is wrong. Help us to proclaim not only your individual salvation, but your will for how men should live. Help us to proclaim not just a gospel of salvation, but a gospel of the kingdom of God, that not only does your salvation reign throughout all eternity, but your law is valid, your standard of righteousness, your word is binding upon all men throughout all eternity. Help us to present the whole counsel of God uh, to men. We pray this in Christ our Savior's name. Amen. Amen.